November 15th, 1996, construction crews on James Cameron's Titanic complete the big ship that sits right on the coast in Rosarito, Mexico. And they begin to shoot scenes that recreate April 10th, 1912 in Southampton, a day that had been clear and crisp and cool, 11 degrees Celsius, which is 52 degrees Fahrenheit, just so you know, a scene where... (laughs) Thousands of people would have waited either eagerly to board Titanic or to watch her leave Southampton for the very first time, headed for Cherbourg, then Queenstown, then New York. So this day that they're recreating, right, it's absolute chaos. There are so many extras on set that everyone who was there that day pretty much tells the same story which is that you felt as if you were at the launch of Titanic. They had planted the ship they built, the replica ship, with its nose facing north, starboard side to the dock, and this allowed James Cameron to take advantage of prevailing winds with the smokestacks and enhance the illusion of motion in the sailing scenes to correctly depict the ship to port side, port side to the dock, as it was actually in reality the day it sailed. He had to flip everything. So that day, as extras playing crew members wandered around, they had lettering on their sweaters that read backwards. The signs on the building that said White Star Line was backwards. The makeup and hair crew had to constantly make sure that Kate Winslet's beauty mark was on the right side of her face for shooting. Everything had to be flipped, absolutely everything. So much so that if you look at behind the scenes photos... (laughs) For this scene, it's honestly a little bit funny. But if you look past that and you see these huge glossy photos of the shoot that day in November 1996, it's actually really, really moving. You can see the Renault motor car being loaded. We'll talk about that. You can look up and you can see Bernard Hill, the actor who played Captain Smith, right up there at the top of the ship peeking out of a doorway. (laughs) I'm L.A. Beatles, and welcome back to Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast. This is back to 1997 on a beach in Rosarito, the making of James Cameron's Titanic, part two. guys wanted to pop in at the beginning and say a couple of things. One, I have just 100% succumbed to cedar fever allergies. (laughs) I live in Texas and the weather has been particularly weird this year as I know it has in a lot of places and just allergies. So my voice does not quite sound the same. Sounds a little weird and husky, so I apologize about that. Number two, I wanted to say a quick note about these episodes. I don't think I've actually taken the time to say it, which is something simple, but I just wanted you to know, which is I understand that there are kind of two camps in my listeners, probably people like me that are Titanic people and also James Cameron's Titanic people, and then also people that are Titanic people and maybe not James Cameron's Titanic people. And I just wanted to say, I totally get that. I respect that. 
If you're someone who is not a James Cameron's Titanic person, but you're listening to these episodes to be sort of an unsinkable completist, then I appreciate you. And if you are a James Cameron's Titanic person like me, I hope you're enjoying them and I hope you're getting to geek out and nerd out and have fun with them in the same ways that I am doing them. And I'm having a blast. I... Again, I think I said it last week, but it's it's almost sort of like a fanfic type experience for me to get to sort of insert myself in the the tale of the making of this movie. And it's so fun. And I am particularly excited about next week's episode, which is a look at a feminist reading of Titanic. And I think I just want to say for that episode, even if you're not a James Cameron's Titanic person, Definitely give it a, sh- a you know a shot next week because I'm really going to touch on a lot of analysis of Titanic in terms of gender, in terms of the ship too, and the way that the ship has been sort of gendered. And there's a there's going to be a lot of Titanic history and analysis woven into that. And so just want to let you know. Definitely give that one a chance and, and don't be turned off by the fact that the title is going to say Rose Dew Epucator in it, but I promise it's going to be some really interesting Titanic scholarship that I've come across in that episode. So there we go. All right. So back to 1996. So the big ship that I mentioned just a second ago was not ready yet, though, in September and October of 1996. The first days of principal photography began September 18th, 1996, with interior sets and perhaps the two most emotionally charged, most iconic scenes were actually shot first. There's and they and they they're shooting in the recreation of the Strauss suite, the suite that we think belong to Ida and Isidore Strauss. This is also the one to note that's recreated a lot of the Titanic museums and museum attractions. The drawing scene, (laughs) I feel like is um, pretty notorious, memed, overworked in pop culture. And we'll talk about some of that in a couple of weeks. I don't want to say too much about it. And I don't want to make myself part of the, you know, cliche conversation about it too much. But I will say that I love the quote from Kate Winslet, which is just quote, I was naked in front of Leonardo DiCaprio on his first day of shooting. (laughs) And I just think, you know, there you go. She's just laying out her experience and and how nerve wracking that was. And I think that one sentence, you understand sort of what the feel on set was. There is um, a story, seems correct. I think Kate and Leo have both said that it did happen, that to ease the tension, heading into the draw me like one of your French girls scenes, she just flashed him before they shot. And I think that's some great on set <laughs> trivia. That's adorable. So anyway, there's that. One important note they've probably heard too about the drawing scene is that obviously it's not Leonardo DiCaprio's hands doing the drawing. It's actually James Cameron's hands, which I think is sort of a trick of the camera is interesting because he actually does this drawing of Kate Winslet just from a set of photos of her he had where she was in, I think, a bathing suit when he, you know, she posed for photos for him, obviously. But he had done these drawings much later. They were like done later in 1997. So that's it's kind of a great trick of, of filmmaking that it seems so seamless. And then also that James Cameron was, I think, 40, was he 43 at the time? And Leo, obviously, I think is 21. So it's sort of, you know, just speaks to the magic of movie making that you're so invested in that scene that you wouldn't even notice that the hand looks so different than what 
Leo's hand would have been. (laughs) That's funny. There's also the breakfast scene where Billy Zane as Cal overturns the table. It's one of the most dramatic scenes of the movie. I believe this was the very first one that they ever shot on principal photography in Rosarito. And Cameron, Billy Zane actually has given quite a few interviews about the shooting of the movie. He seems very verbose, and I mean that in a good way. He's been, at least in interviews that were published right after, he's very descriptive about his experiences on set. So it's a great source. But Billy Zane said that Cameron told him, quote, in a world of control, Cal can create that facade up to a certain point. When it breaks, it breaks abruptly and catastrophically. And so that was his motivation behind that scene, you know, coming in cold. They haven't shot any of the movie yet. The actors don't know each other very well. I think that there's been a lot of debate about Billy Zane's portrayal of Cal and a lot of critics think it's a little bit of an overboard sort of portrayal. But I think it's, you know, a classic. We talked last week about this being a sort of classic Hollywood epic throwback film. And I think if you have an epic classic throwback Hollywood timeless film, then you have to have a timeless villain. And Cal has to be a villain. And a lot of people say his, char- his character is caricature. It seems caricatured. I think if it is, that's good. I think... That one of the things about this film that Cameron nails is the sort of archetypes. And I think sometimes modern day film critics use the word archetype as a negative. But I think in in a film like this, it's actually for the positive. So anyway, that's my Billy Zane moment. We'll talk about him a little bit more throughout. But I do think that what he does with the Cal character is very blunt and brazen and... Um, expressive. Billy Zane said about James Cameron, you'd really have to look to a labor of love, an independent film, typically, for this kind of vibe. This is Cameron's baby. So from moment one on this set as they're shooting, I think it's very evident to the cast that this film is Cameron's baby that he's gestating. And uh, that will make Cameron uh, very passionate in some uh, situations on set coming up. So they do more shooting in the shallow tank, which we spoke about in last week's episode. That was the tank that was only four feet deep. And the extras were sort of expected to wait around and look like they were, you know, thrashing, look like they were, you know, then floating in their life preservers and frozen to death. And I can't even imagine what it must have felt like to be you know, crouching in that tank for hours at a time. But they do a lot of shooting in that tank, you know, the lifeboat scenes, things like that. So Cameron walks around or wades around in waders, like W-A-D-E-R, walks through the belly deep water, through all these extras. There's monitors and cameras clustered everywhere. They're waterproof. A lot of these are designed specifically to be in the water. There are a lot of local extras. And remember, this is in Mexico. This is a nut, this is obviously a problematic part of it, but extras don't get paid very much. And, you know, part of the reason this production went down to Mexico was to save money on labor. So they're not paying these extras very much, and no extras get paid very much, just so you know. And a lot of them don't speak English. And so they're having to shout instructions in English and Spanish. Things like, you're drowning in the middle of a pitch black ocean. And I just think that's of hilarious if it's okay to say that of just imagining these extras shooting these scenes and those types of things being shouted and then you know action 
It's just insane to think about, but that's how these scenes were created. There is one story I ran across from an extra. She was one of, she wasn't one of the core, 150 main core, but she was on the set on and off for several months. And she was in a lot of the third class scenes. And she said there is this story where she was called on personally by James Cameron to come over to where Kate Winslet was in the water and sort of pull and scratch at her. You know, the scene where, you know, after Jack and Rose have ridden the stern down, they get separated for, you know, a few kind of scary seconds and someone tries to jump on Kate Winslet, hold her head down. The bodies are all thrashing under the water. So one of the extras, she said she was asked by Cameron to basically come and pull and scratch at Kate Winslet. And that at one point Cameron took Kate Winslet and and sort of uh, showed her what she wanted, what he wanted her to do. And then the woman said, I'm sorry, I just can't, I cannot do this. I cannot beat up Kate Winslet. Essentially, she was too nervous. So James Cameron called in a stunt person who, you know, obviously stunt people are trained in making it look like they're hurting people when they're not. And anyway, I just thought that was an interesting story. There was a French bulldog on these water sets. You know, it's in the film, French bulldog swimming around. Actually, I think, is he in the final cut? That might be a deleted scene. There were several dogs on board Titanic, so they a lot of them probably ended up in the water. And I can't remember now whether the scene of the little bulldog swimming, it's so sad, maybe deleted scenes. But uh, this is one of my favorite side notes from researching this at all. So Cameron adopted that dog and had that dog for years. And one of the extras remembers him calling the dog my little dog, even on set. So I think he met that dog on set and adopted it. They moved to the dining saloon scene, which I feel like I could write an entire, probably academic essay about the dining saloon scene and the accuracy that James Cameron achieved in filming that scene and the technical <laughs> requirements of filming that scene and the just immersive experience for those actors of filming that scene. So basically, they built the dining room completely 100%. They built the dining saloon for first class. So they had 450 table settings. And remember last week, we talked about how they recreated all the china, the silverware, every single plate, every single cup is stamped with white star line. Cameron doesn't miss any of these details. So the dining saloon is sitting there, (laughs) you know, chairs, lamps on tables, everything, the lighting, the ceiling, the walls, everything's completely done to the specifications that we know. So when you entered the dining saloon, you just entered a whole new world altogether. You entered 1912, the creamy white light, the chandeliers, like I said, over 100 tables set for a dinner in 1912. Ken Marshall was there. He's the obviously the famous artist that's been painting Titanic for decades and studying the ship for decades and decades. He was there and he said he was floored and near tears. You could pretty much have a, because of the sets at that time, you could pretty much have a seamless line between a first class hallway, Rose and Cow's suite, and the dining saloon. So both Ken Marshall and Don Lynch, famous Titanic historian, he was also on set consulting, uh, working as a consultant for Cameron. Marshall and Lynch both said that to walk that walk to experience moving seamlessly uh, on those sets. It just felt like you were in 1912. It's pretty incredible. There was also the etiquette coach, Lynn Hockney. I mentioned her last week, circling around, stopping people from fidgeting, kind of in the moment, coaching people on the etiquette, 
It's the first class dinner service, obviously. These people were dressed to the nines. And so it's, you know, it was little things, just tiny things as small as, oh, if a woman is, you know, standing in a corset, she should be standing a certain way. And if the corset, maybe the extra in the corset was feeling uncomfortable, it might be fidgeting. And this woman would come around and stop that and was monitoring these micro movements going on, which is insane to think about. There was real caviar. (laughs) And Jonathan Hyde, who plays uh, Bruce Ismay, he said, quote, the caviar was very high quality. I made an acting decision on the spot that Bruce Ismay was a big eater. And just side note, I... I'm not in the business of plugging my own episodes. That sounds terrible. But I will say that the episode, it was the second one I ever did, the episode on Bruce Ismay, I to just all the time still, people are discovering that episode and email me about it. I'm really proud of that episode. I think it does a really good job of laying out who Bruce Ismay was and both sides of his story, viewing him as, you know, Jay Brute Ismay, as the papers called him, or as, you know, kind of a wounded man. And the reality is probably somewhere in the middle. But that episode has been insanely popular. And if you're interested in Bruce Ismay, I really suggest you go listen to that one. There's so much to unpack. There's also Bernard Fox, who I mentioned was uh, the he played Frederick Fleet in A Night to Remember in 1958, and he's Colonel Archibald Gracie. Ken Marshall tells this great story that Bernard Fox is walking around completely made up as Gracie, and he announces to Ken Marshall, I'm Colonel Gracie. And Marshall says, indeed you are. It's a great story. Also, Archibald Gracie released a memoir, if you don't know, right after the sinking. Uh, Gracie survived on the overturned collapsible. That was the overturned collapsible that had Light Toller on it, that had Harold Bride, the Marconi operator on it. It was mostly men. There was one woman. That is, I would say, Gracie's memoir, if you're going to be use the word completist again. I don't think you can ever be a Titanic completist, but if your goal is to try to be one, then Gracie's memoir is just an absolute must read. Obviously, as I always say, you know, and keeping in mind that that memory is a fallible thing and a funny thing, but his memoir is pretty play by play about how he ended up on that overturned collapsible. It's very detailed and very open. I think for someone of his class at the time to publish something that was that almost journalistic in its sense of detail, um, it's a big deal. He unfortunately died just a few months later. He didn't survive very long. I believe he died from complications, you know, from the hypothermia, from his injuries, uh, being in the water and being exposed as he was that night. So he actually didn't live long after after April 1912. I think he died later that year. Most people don't know that. Gracie, Gracie, Gracie. I'm going to take you on a little side trip about Archibald Gracie. Bear with me. I'm always amazed when my research has these moments of kind of synchronicity, and it happens a lot. And I think if you read and you study something that you're passionate about, then it's just the energy you put out and it's going to happen and you're going to make new discoveries and connections. So you probably know, or maybe you know, if you've listened to the book club announcement episode, that one of the upcoming books um, for the book club on the pod is Ben Raines' new book, The Last American Slave Ship, about the Clotilda. The Clotilda was a ship that was the last, that we know of, the last slave cargo ship bringing human beings as cargo from Africa to the United States. It was the last one that did that in 1860. 
that was done. Obviously, illegally, the slave trade had already been abolished at that point. It was brought into Mobile, Alabama by a steamship owner there. And so I've been reading a lot about the ship, a lot about slaveholding in the area, a lot about Mobile, the cotton industry. And guess whose father was a cotton brokerage businessman in the Mobile, Alabama area? Ding, ding, ding. Archibald Gracie's father. He then broke with actually his unionist relatives to fight for the Confederacy in the Civil War. This is Archibald's dad, Archibald Gracie's dad. He fought at the Battle of Chickamauga, and he died in 1864 while observing Union Army movements at the Siege of Petersburg, Virginia. Archibald Gracie that we know of on Titanic was only about five years old when his dad died, but he would later spend seven years writing a book called The Truth About Chickamauga. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we'll unpack all this in an Archibald Gracie episode, but there's there's a problematic thread there. And, you know, I, I see this a lot with the first class passengers on board Titanic and how they've been written about. And trust me, this is not to discount any heroic actions by them. This is not to discount entire the entire character of anybody. But I do think it's problematic that when we write about and we have these conversations about especially these first class well-known passengers on Titanic, we do not dig deeper into things like that, which is, um, you know, he's lauded for his memoir and as a hero, but he also spent seven years writing about the Confederacy and the lost cause, essentially, seems like. So there's problems there. And uh, I was very surprised to see that connection. I'd never known about it. Maybe when I do my Clotilda episode, I can find some research on the Gracie family in Mobile and can cover that a little bit. So, But anyway, all that to say, don't be mad at me. I love studying Archibald Gracie. I think he is a very intriguing figure. In fact, my two favorite first-class passengers on board Titanic to study are Archibald Gracie and Archibald Butt. So the two Archies is what we call them in my household. And I do enjoy studying them. And I think... I'm one of those historians where if I find a problematic thread in terms of, oh, you know, this slices into the mythology or this isn't as pretty of a picture as we wish it was, I don't shy away from it. And I also don't think it ruins a person completely. I think people are gray. They are not black and white. And I love finding the gray areas and I love opening up new (laughs) threads about people, good or bad. The work is to present everything honestly as I see it. And so as long as I'm doing that, that's what matters. Anyway, this was a long, long, long tangent about Archibald Gracie. Anyway, Archibald Gracie at the dinner in the dining saloon in James Cameron's Titanic. Okay, rewriting myself. As you can tell, I'm a little bit out of it. Last couple of weeks, we've had sick kiddos. It's been a crazy January. (laughs) I hope everybody's doing okay out there. I know times are still, you know, very trying and, and stressful. All right, back to 1996. Let's get lost in that. Also at the dining scene, Leo notoriously turns to Kathy Bates. They have been sitting, filming this dining saloon scene for a long time. This was filmed over several days. And it was, if you know anything about filmmaking, I've never made a film, but I've read about filmmaking enough to know this was a big deal. But whenever you have a scene where there's a lot of people sitting at a table, really hard to shoot a scene like that because you have to have cameras, you know, over the shoulders of of several people to get it at different angles. One person may be talking who's in the shot there. Anyway, there's a very complicated shot, series of shots to get. Leo turns to Kathy Bates. Of course, she was playing Margaret Brown and says, which one of these, and he points to the 
you know, intricately set table and to the knife, which one of these do I use to lobotomize myself, apparently, Leo said. One thing about the dining saloon scene that I'm very proud of for uncovering in my research, and this would probably be the one thing that, you know, if I did meet James Cameron, I would want to bring up, but then I probably wouldn't because I'd be so scared he'd be mad at me for pointing something like this out. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Based on my research on Benjamin Guggenheim, his mistress, Madame Aubert, she wouldn't have been in the dining saloon. I actually have read that she, it was very op- it was open and known that he had a mistress on board, but she took her meals in the a la carte restaurant for to maintain a little bit of a level of, I don't know, respect to Guggenheim's wife, perhaps. But again, that source could be wrong. So maybe James Cameron knows something I don't. But I, I was proud when I read that. I said to myself, did I find the one thing maybe James Cameron doesn't know about? the dining saloon and the first class dinner. So anyway, I could be wrong, but I think, I think uh, I'll, have to, I'll have to go uh, hunt back through my sources and uh, find the specific citation for that. So I'll be ready. James Cameron, if you ever call me, I'll be ready and we can have a conversation about it. All right. Other scenes uh, that you might find interesting. The scene where Kate Winslet comes out on the deck and Jack... Uh, the character of Jack sees Rose from down below. An extra who was on set remembers Cameron asking, uh, <laughs> she walked out in a hat that was full of orange flowers and all this fabric. And Cameron yells up to the deck, like, what's on your head? Not talks to the ca- the costumer, but just yells to Kate, what are you wearing? And this extra remembers Kate yelling down, I don't know, but I feel like a blank pizzeria. Uh, then Cameron proceeds to throw the hat, which this would have been very typical of first class women at the time. They obviously were in these elaborate hats and you see some of that in the film. But if, as you notice, Rose never wears a hat again in the film after her big interest in the entrance in the Southampton dock. And that is probably because of this scene, because Cameron saw Kate Winslet walk out in this huge hat and he basically told the costumer, this ruins the scene. I can't do this. He throws the hat off the side of this fake ship. Yeah, no more. No more more hats. The suicide attempt scene where Jack and Rose meet, that was shot three different ways over many days. Kate Winslet in many interviews has cited how incredibly difficult it was. Uh, The car scene, famous Renault scene, here's something you may not know. The Renault was 100% really on board. It was owned by William Carter, a very, very wealthy man from Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, and he had bought it when he was in Europe. It's listed as a case, though in the cargo manifesto. So it's possible that the car wasn't assembled. It's also possible it was. And then just in a case, James Cameron obviously took some liberties, you know, by in that Southampton scene, I talked about at the opening, you can see the car coming in on the ropes. It's pretty incredible. And obviously becomes the scene of a very crucial part of the movie. I think if you were a 13-year-old like I was when the movie came out, probably one of the most important scenes in James Cameron's Titanic. But uh, yeah, it was owned by William Carter. And there is this great story around William Carter. It's a little bit sad that he and his family did survive. But basically, he ends up on a lifeboat with Bruce Ismay, 
separate from his wife and kids. And he says that he safely saw his wife and kids off into a lifeboat before he did that and ended up on a boat himself. His wife had a different story. She says that after the the ship hit the iceberg, she didn't really see him again and that she and her kids got on a lifeboat. And then when they were boarding Carpathia, the rescue ship, he was just standing there already on board Carpathia kind of you know, tipping his hat like, oh, nice to see you. I'm, I'm sure in a jokey way. I'm sure he was, was very, very, very relieved to see them. But they actually ended up divorcing several years later. And she cited this, I think, as the reason for the divorce. So some interesting backstory on William Carter. Let's see here. Steerage scene, the steerage dancing scene, probably one of the most kind of well-known, always played clips of the movie I've been listening and watching, listening to and watching a lot of interviews by cast, crew, extras, production, uh, designers, I mean, you name it. And one of the really common threads is that a lot of them talk about how fun that scene was to shoot. There's one extra, she said, basically after they shot that scene, everybody stuck around and the band Gaelic Storm, they continued to play through the night. Looks like they were drinking real beer to me. (laughs) So I think it was a fun scene. I think in the middle of this really, really long, hard shoot, and you've got to remember, like, a lot of the shooting is happening at night because for a lot of the scenes, even the ones on deck, it's got to be at night. Even before they start shooting the sinking scenes, but think about the, you know, Jack and Rose in the attempted suicide scene. Like, that's that's got to be shot at night. So there's late nights, and there's obviously a lot of persistent and obsessive attention to detail. So whether you're a crew member, whether you're an extra, you're tired. Uh, The water that these extras in is cold. It's seawater. There are reports already at this point, even in, you know, September, October, November, early parts of the shoot, people are getting sick. A lot of people are just expected to come to work with a cold. And this is unfortunately sort of the, the feel on set, right? That you just push through, work through, sleep later. I think it's the reason why this movie is so good. Uh, Cameron's work ethic was incomparable. I think he expected it of everybody, but I think there's obviously pros and cons to that sort of mentality. And it's obviously very easily argued that he was a bit too demanding. So, you know, there's, depends on, you know, I always talk about like the bones of something, the angles, the elbows, the knees, It's, you know, awkward to talk about something like this because I don't know these people personally and I can sit and I can read or listen to, you know, interviews, but I've never met these people and I've never met James Cameron. And I actually really, really admire James Cameron. I like him a lot from everything I've read about him. So I don't know. I don't know how to talk about it. I think unless you were there, you probably don't have a a fully complex and complete picture of what it felt like. But I did want to sort of show both sides of that. All right. Speaking of James Cameron, uh, in terms of one last little scene to mention, uh, the spitting scene where Jack teaches Rose how to spit. Apparently nobody liked it. Nobody at 20th Century Fox. Kane Leo didn't like it. None of the producers liked it. They really, a lot of people worked to try to convince Cameron to cut it, but he loved it. And he was right, right? It works perfectly. I think it was uh, egg white they would use in those spitting scenes, that one. And then when Rose, you know, does the kind of mirror image spit at Cal's character later in the movie. But uh, one interesting interesting part, if you listen to James Cameron's commentary on the DVD, and I listened to the one on the tw- uh, 2012 release of Titanic on, on DVD, like the special edition, if you listen to the commentary, 
James Cameron, when he's talking about that scene, he's talking about filming the spitting scene. He said that one of the reasons he wanted to keep it in was just to show that this movie showed, you know, kind of all the sides of Passengers of Titanic and it, quote, wasn't your dad's Titanic movie. It's more modern. I just love that. I should have called this ep- this series of episodes. It's not your dad's Titanic movie. I love that. I just I called to my husband in the other room. I was like, did you know this is not your dad's Titanic movie? I know what that means. All right. I did just want to mention a couple other people that pop up in some of these scenes. Victor Garber as Thomas Andrews. Victor Garber is an amazing actor. He's, you know, been in so many movies, so many television shows. From everything that I've read about Andrews, and I am prepping an Andrews episode for Down the Line, it's a lot of material, guys, and that one's probably going to be a while. But from everything that I've read about Thomas Andrews, the writing by Cameron of Andrews in this movie and the portrayal of Victor Garber is so accurate and beautifully done. Andrews was well known for being kind and especially kind to crew and to going out of his way. And he obviously he was the head of the guarantee group going over on the ship to make sure everything in the ship was running as it should be to find where any problem areas might be. But he went out of his way on that voyage and before when they were building the ship to make sure that the crew were comfortable and had everything they needed. And he was well known for that. So Andrews, definitely, you know, heroic and kind and wonderful person by all accounts. I want to having Gareth Russell, who wrote The Ship of Dreams on for our kind of book club episode for February. And I definitely would talk about Andrews with him because he wrote pretty extensively about Andrews. Also, Kathy Bates as Margaret Brown. One of my only points of contention with James Cameron over this movie is calling her Molly Brown in this movie because that just feeds into the mythology about Margaret Brown. She was not known as Molly in her lifetime. She, by uh, some accounts, went by Maggie sometimes, but she was Margaret Brown. And we'll talk about, I'm going to talk about this a little bit with Gareth Russell, hopefully, as well. But she... I think, you know, in the Titanic movie, she's always pretend she's always presented as this juxtaposition against the old money, right? She's the new money. Her husband made his money in the kind of Wild West, uh, sort of, you know, almost like hillbilly kind of, you know, she's often portrayed as having this, you know, bellowing, laughing, almost hillbilly kind of voice that she's sort of a wild woman that's new money and trying to make it and trying to barge in on the kind of aristocratic old money people. But, you know, for theatrical effect, for dramatic effect... I get why her character is used that way. And the mythology of Margaret Brown came from, you know, writer that wrote about her and sort of spread some of these myths about her that weren't real. And I, you know, again, I know I always say it, but I promise all these episodes are coming. It's just going to take a while, but I am doing one on Margaret Brown as well. So a lot of this about her was mythology. She actually was pretty well respected in society. She was very refined. She, you know, had been in Europe traveling. She knew multiple languages. Um, She was a connoisseur of many fine things. She would go on to be on the Carpathia single-handedly, really like uh, motivating other passengers to give money to the third class survivors. She organized basically all of the charitable uh, actions that were going on on the Carpathia. She was a suffragist. She was an activist. There's so much about Margaret Brown that can't be encompassed, you know, just in a movie about Titanic. Titanic is just one very, very uh, specific part of her story and within a much larger story. But one interesting thing about this movie that James Cameron does get right 
and I don't know if it was an accident. <laughs> Margaret Brown and, and John Jacob Astor were actually really dear friends. And Margaret Brown had actually been on part of J.J. Astor's and Madeline Astor's honeymoon uh, when they were in Egypt. They were great friends. And so the there's a couple of scenes in James Cameron's Titanic where you see Margaret Brown and J.J. Astor greet each other, and they actually greet each other very warmly. It's in the scene when uh, Ruth and Rose are getting off of the elevator at the beginning, and there's the the voiceover talking about the new money, Molly Brown. But you see Margaret Brown getting on the elevator and kind of nodding to JJ and he's smiling. And then also when Jack comes to the first class dinner, you see Margaret, I'm gonna call her Margaret, talking to JJ and they sort of nod and smile and seem very familiar with each other. So actually, I think I probably was James Cameron kind of getting a little nod in there, even though he didn't have time to maybe develop that part of the story in the movie, but they were great friends. And she was great friends with a lot of these old money New Yorkers and such. So a lot about that, a lot of, of Margaret Brown being, you know, Molly Brown that that was, you know, uncouth and, and nobody in this old money set wanted to be around her. A lot of that is just Titanic mythology. I can't wait to talk about her more because she had a really, really, really incredible life. So anyway, but Kathy Bates does a great job. I mean, she does a great job with the character that she's given of Molly Brown. And she's a real light in the movie and she provides provides a great character for Rose and Jack to interact with and sort of move their story along a lot storyline along and I mean you can't go wrong with Kathy Bates. Kathy Bates is incredible and she's one of the best parts of the movie. So there you go. And also there's not enough about about Brown at the end when she's in the lifeboat because there's this incredible story where she sort of takes over a lifeboat and starts rowing and gets the women rowing to stay warm and she has this altercation with Robert Hitchens who is a quartermaster. He was that's a little bit in the movie, but it does. The movie doesn't show Margaret Brown standing up to him, which by all accounts she did. So I do. That's like one thing with this movie is I have some points of contention about about Margaret Brown. So maybe I'll I'll do a little section on that when I do an episode on her, and we'll talk about that more. There were also a lot of cut scenes uh, that Cameron shot with the wireless operators, Bride and Phillips, and a lot actually with the Californian. And we talk about this a little bit in my interview with William Hazelgrove in the first book club episode that the story of the Californian nearby is so intriguing. And I suppose James Cameron cut those scenes mostly just for time. <laughs> Obviously, I'm, I'm sure there's a cut of this movie that's five hours long. So but he did he did shoot some of that. And those deleted scenes are on the DVDs. And I, I highly encourage you to look those up. In a Rolling Stone article that was released right after the film was released, the writer said of Kate Winslet kind of talking about her experiences of shooting the film. He wrote, quote, as Winslet describes Rosarito, it has the sound of a seven month long family dinner with DiCaprio and Winslet trying to scare up some fun in the basement. So as the shoots kind of settles in, I think, you know, I mean, who are we to know? We weren't there. But it seems like these actors got to know each other really well. And there are probably quite a few shenanigans, I think, when you're um, when you're that tired and worn out. You probably you I mean, at least from my experiences, you have some of the most fun of your life, but you're also just some of the most, you know, miserable of your life when you're right in the middle of this big, long, hardworking experiences like that. Um, sure, it had sort of a summer camp feel to it, too. These people are in Rosarito for six, seven months. Crew is, cast is. There's also uh, one extra told this great story of Billy Zane jumping into a hotel pool at two in the morning at a party at one point. I love that story. Love me some Zane. I have this ongoing thread on Instagram. If you follow me on Instagram, you know that 
I follow Billy Zane on Instagram. And every once in a while, I just like one of his posts or comment on it or, you know, repost one of his posts in my story and say, this is my dream podcast. And I'm inside joke is that I'm just desperately trying to get Billy Zane to come on my podcast. I, I don't know if that'll ever happen. Full disclosure, I even tried to email him. I didn't hear anything back. So anyway, Billy Zane, if you ever hear this, just know that it will be, it'll be a love fest. It would be a love fest. Nothing negative. It'd be very positive. would love that. So now we get to sort of some of the meat of the filming, uh, the very daunting scenes of the sinking. There was the building of the poop deck, which got a lot of press. And at this time, you've got to remember, the press is reporting on the filming of this movie. Waterworld in 95 had just bombed. Uh, there was a lot of comparisons to that. There was a lot of news reporting, entertainment news reporting about the budget of Titanic ballooning and 20th Century Fox and Paramount being nervous. Variety had a Titanic watch column at one point. And so all of this is sort of being monitored. And this is also sort of still in that monocultural time, right? Where the internet was in our lives, but it wasn't our whole lives yet. We didn't have cell phones in our pockets that were computers. We weren't on computers and devices all day. We just weren't. And so a lot of the news or kind of entertainment fun information that you got was watching Entertainment Tonight or watching, you know, the news and the entertainment segment or something like that. So there's a lot of that watching. The poop deck is apparently what made 20th Century Fox a little bit nervous. They built you know, that part of the stern on pulleys and wires so it could be, you know, lifted all the way to vertical. It was one of the most complicated and complex parts of the set. And they had to film the scene at the very end, right, where the stern goes all the way up and they have to make it look like, and a lot of this will be achieved through the CG shots later, but they have to realistically look like it is chaos and the sinking is happening on this part of the poop deck. It would be achieved with 250 people, 150 extras, and then 100 stunt performers. Some were lashed to the uh, the railing, and some were tumbling down. These were stunt performers who were trained. Then a lot more people would be added in post-production. But this is, like I said last week, this is the brilliance of this movie. It's the combination of the practical effects with the CG that would be put in later, now it's pretty much all CG and green screen, but these shots, the shots are based off of actual shots of this physical poop deck being filmed. And a lot of the equipment was on the poop deck. The set was painted. It was foam that was painted to look real, but it was actually foam so that if you were a stunt performer and you fell at random spots, you would land on soft foam. Objects, so objects that look like metal were often foam. There were a couple of injuries. There was one broken ankle, one broken cheekbone. Cameron, that made him nervous. For everything that you read about Cameron, he's actually a huge stickler for safety. He has angel divers in with all of his water performers uh, on this set. He's cognizant of safety measures. When he sees a couple of injuries come through, he says, we're shutting anything down but just harnesses. So no free falling extras anymore. So he harnesses everybody at that point. And just so you know, he act John Landau, the producer, uh, Cameron's right-hand man, he actually at one point straps his own child and wife to the poop deck so that they can be extras in this scene. So it couldn't have been that 
dangerous if that is the case. There were also human-shaped stunt pads. <laughs> it was hard to focus. It really was. Uh, this is a quote from Leo. I remember how they got one scene ready in about two hours, and then all of a sudden, I'm doed up on the back of a poop deck with a harness around my waist. There's 200 extras cabled on with bungee cords, stuntmen ready to fall off and hit the cushioned girders. And then there's three cranes around us with huge spotlights. Kate and I look at each other. How did we get here? Dot quote probably sums up how I'm trying to explain this poop deck shooting better than I have done in the last five minutes. A little bit of trivia on the back of the ship with Jack and Rose, the baker that you see in his baker whites, that is Charles Jockin. And I have spoken about him in a bonus episode. And I think on here a couple of times, he was a real person. He was the head baker for the ship. He spent a lot of the sinking, running around, throwing deck chairs off to try to help people. He got busy, tried to get biscuits in the boats. He organized his baking staff to help. And he also went down to his cabin and I think drank quite a bit. It's debatable whether it was whiskey or schnapps. I think we, I think his family said it was schnapps. He drank to fortify and he claims that he was there at the top of the stern, wrote it down and then just kind of, there was no suction and he sort of swam off and that his head never got wet. And that's why he survived because he was actually in the water for quite a while, but he did survive and he credits that. So it's a real person, very intriguing story. And he's right there with Jack and Rose on the back of those scenes. So by October 1996, Cameron had run through $75 million and would go through a matching sum before wrapping the following March. And this didn't include marketing, distribution, more special effects, all the CG work. Before it was even greenlit, Cameron had gone through three rounds of cuts with Fox. So they've already cut some stuff. Then comes a fateful visit by the producer Bill Mechanic. Uh, mechanic had been promoted. Peter Chernin had been promoted up the chain to pretty much the head of Fox. And Mechanic has been uh, a man who's been promoted to uh, work uh, with Titanic. So he's basically promoted to be chief of filmed entertainment because Chernin had been promoted to COO of News Corp. So... <laughs> He had uh, he had previously run worldwide home video and international theatrical distribution at Disney. This is a businessman. Uh, he's nervous about what's going on in Rosarito, and he makes this fateful set visit. And Cameron felt that, quote, at the time, the knife was already too close to the bone. Basically, this is a notorious thing. A mechanic comes, finds Jim Cameron in his trailer, says, hey looks great, but I've just got to tell you, we're going to have to make some more cuts. This isn't going to work. This is costing too much money. Cameron was barely eating a noodle bowl or something to that effect and lost it and said, you know, why don't you take over the movie if you think you can do it better than me? I think there was some loud cursing exchanges <laughs> going on. Cameron, I think, stomps off, like li literally leaves set. I wasn't there, so I don't, I don't know. I've, I've you know, read a couple of articles of people really try to fill in the blanks on that conversation almost as if they were a fly on the wall, but who knows what was actually said. We weren't there. So this is a big moment uh, with the budget and they end up bringing in some additional producers to sort of assess what's going on. Cameron told many, including his producers, Landau and Sanchini, 
and expressed openly that he hated how over budget that he'd gone. No one had ever done this kind of film quite before. And on some items, he just honestly had known what would happen or how much they would cost. So for the first few months, what had happened is that there was pretty much just an unencumbered spending as he ordered all of these props, made all of these props, built these sets. So more production managers were brought in and then they had a better idea of what they were spending. The one big cut was that with the tilting of the big ship model that they had built, and remember that this is still under construction, they haven't quite filmed, you know, at the beginning of the episode, I talked about the Southampton scene, they haven't filmed that yet. They haven't filmed any of the flooding scenes, nothing like that. They have built this big ship, though they're working on it, and it had been designed to tilt at two angles, three and six degrees, and it was designed to split between funnels two and three, the 200-foot forward section on a riser that traveled the 40-foot depth of the tank like an elevator, allowing it to sink on command and actuated by eight 17-foot hydraulic rams. And this was used on the dining set as well when this floods. There, The ship is originally supposed to be tilted at these two angles, but in order to do that, it takes 36 days to... Well, they realize at this point that the ship they've built weighs a lot more than they thought too. That's another story. But they they realize that in order to change angles, it's going to take 36 days per change of angle. So heading into the holiday break, as they're completing this ship, as they're looking ahead to when they come back from the holidays and they're going to be filming all the intense flooding sequences and things, they realize that that is one cut that has to be made. And, and Cameron does make a concession on that cut. So they decide that they're only going to tilt to one of the angles. They originally were going to tilt to three or six degrees. And I think they... Are, I think they decided to just tilt it to six. And then with the other sort of setting, they're going to have to kind of fake it through camera trickery, through leaning, the actors leaning and things like that. So they decide that they'll figure that out uh, because changing the degree on the ship would entail draining and then refilling the 17 million gallon tank uh, of seawater and then also like a lot of mechanics as you can imagine so they decide they go ahead and decide that that is going to be the case on november 15th they complete the big ship i speak about in the opening and film the southampton scene cameron just honestly never stops he's always there in the trenches uh there's this uh there's this tale about the ice arriving for the post-collision sequence after the iceberg falls onto the deck and he just starts hacking away, um, doesn't expect the crew to do what he's asking without him doing it too. And he gets on the deck and starts hacking away. He commuted home on Sundays to see his family one day. He has a daughter at this point, one day a week. By holidays 1996, the press, like I mentioned, had gone crazy. Newsweek, Newsweek ran an item called A Sinking Sensation thought about that for the title of my podcast really. Uh, and Cameron's response already at that time was, hey, spectacle costs money. So they break for Christmas, but Cameron continues to work really. He doesn't take much of a break. He spends most of his quote hiatus uh, editing and working on visual effects, even filming some scenes in a studio with Kate Winslet and Billy Zane. They try to get some footage ready for the Show West convention, which is the National Association of Theater Owners. And uh, they like the, you know, king of the world scene where Leonardo DiCaprio and Danny Nucci are on the bow of the ship. A lot of that is green screen. A lot of that one is green screen. So they shoot some of that. They come back from Christmas and Titanic is plunged by its bow beneath the waterline. 
Uh, Jonathan Hyde said, quote, it was very surreal to be driving down the coast and suddenly discover this wounded Leviathan. I wonder if anyone has phoned the Coast Guard saying there's a rather expensive looking ship over there. And I think it's in trouble. Because if you have to imagine, they built the set, I mean, they built 90% of the ship. So if you're driving down the highway, and you look over if you're in a at a vista at any point in this area, you could essentially see Titanic, which is pretty incredible. I, I can't even imagine. So this is a 600 foot set, three stories high stacked with people. So this is, you know, definitely um, physical movie making. And you think about, um, you know, the other day I was reading an article about that new Netflix movie Red Notice and how it was really popular on Netflix. But and I think rightly so. There's sort of a backlash because in the movie, I haven't seen it, but in the movie, the characters go all over the world or engaged in all sorts of random activities all over the world. But it's all green screen. So at one point, right, if you've seen it, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a scene where I think Ryan Reynolds is in some sort of like arena and you can totally tell it's just not even a real arena. And anyway, I just I was thinking about all of that in terms of this movie. The reason that this movie ages so well is that there is the physical ship that they built. And of course, they're adding so many CG elements in around it at the end, but the physical ship is there. They filmed the dining room flooding scene, 1.3 million pounds of heaving wood and steel. At one point, it plunged five feet for no reason and scared the hell out of people. Uh, When the dining room was sinking, the chief lighting technician actually got electrocuted at one point by a table lamp and his arm went numb for three days. Uh, Director of photography Russell Carpenter and his crew zipped around the tanks in Zodiac boats. Paula Parisi, a journalist on hand, and she wrote Titanic and the Making of James Cameron, like I mentioned, huge source for this episode, said that at one point Cameron turns to the others around him and says, quote, would this would this just ruin your night thousands of miles out in the middle of nowhere? Uh, When they shoot uh, scenes like the poop deck or the sinking scenes on the large ship model, Cameron is actually on a construction crane, swooping down like God, (laughs) wagging his fingers at extras that ran the wrong way. Uh, Stunt people performed endless drills to operate the lifeboats and the davits. This was not easy work. Um, At one point, Cameron is smashing windows to help the set sink faster. There's the dome above the the Grand Staircase implosion. They really imploded this dome. This was a wonder. They had escape routes planned, especially for James Murrow, who was the Steadicam operator. They had multiple cameras. They did, they had this system set up where they all counted down to make sure and confirm several times that they were all ready because this was a wonder shot. This was a get it or don't get it. And so they actually imploded that dome. Uh, Stunt coordinator Simon Crane walks off the set at one point (laughs) uh, because things are so tense, but ends up staying. Actors would go to bed at 7 a.m. just as the lobster boats were leaving their docks to fish. So that is the sort of grueling atmosphere that is setting in. Uh, with cast and crew in Rosarito. Uh, Also going on, you've got a second unit director that is shooting scenes like the plates falling or the hallways, and that's all going on in a technical sense. And then also behind the scenes, while all this is going on, you've got people working at 
digital domain, figuring out how to seamlessly bridge all of these technical shots of the movies. So they're working on things already. A perfect example of how all of this melds and how all of these people are, are multiple groups of people are working on one shot. There is the shot of the engine room coming to life and that sort of take her to see Murdoch, you know, and then you you see the engine room come to life and all of these people running around the engine room. So this is the perfect example. So they found a Liberty ship, the Jeremiah O'Brien, which was an old World War II ship that had the same triple expansion reciprocating engines, similar to Titanic, but it was basically a one-third engine size of Titanic. They are, uh, you know, I'll just, this is actually a great behind the scenes clip to play. I'm going to let you uh, hear the crew explain how they did this. The engine room sequence was um, very involved. You know, today, nobody thinks twice about, you know, shooting against a green screen and having it all, you know, digitally added later. But at that time, it was difficult to do digital stuff. So a lot of it was done with models. And we would do motion control matching and a bunch of complicated things. We did some research, and there was this Liberty ship, the Jeremiah O'Brien, which is an old World War II vessel that had triple expansion reciprocating engines. Basically, like a one-third scale version of the Titanic's engines. So we had some model makers to build one-third scale lights and catwalks, and then we treated it as basically a model shoot. We went into this Liberty ship, we lit it with miniature light bulbs, and we had catwalks, and then we photographed at a slightly faster film rate to sort of give it a little bit more mass. One of the things I learned from Jim is the key is never do the same trick twice. Just when you think, ah, they're doing it with motion control in the background, you change it, and now it's a real engine room, you know, with the Jeremiah O'Brien with its one-third scale engines moving around, and you cut to another shot, and, you know, it's a green screen foreground with a background of the model. And that, speaking, was Stephen Quayle. He was the second unit director. So there's just so much going on (laughs) to marry all of this together, right? There are scenes that are being shot in Rosarito that have to be melded with these CG shots. Uh, Things like, you know, going to shoot on the World War II ship that have to be done off-site. So it's a lot going on um, that that has to come together. Uh, like, you know, pieces of an orchestra coming together. Let's just go over a maybe just a few of the digital shots that are uh, complicated and interesting. There's the first class corridor on B deck. They did a force perspective joining with the miniature and extending the hallway. So basically, some of the hallways that you see in the movie are just miniatures. It's pretty insane. Some shots are a model in front of a green screen stage shot with a motion control camera computer-generated ocean, water scaled perfectly. The realistic digital water actually came from research from the defense industry. Scientists were trying to find a way to track and identify ships and subs from satellites by analyzing the ocean surface and the wake patterns that these ships were generating. So for years, they had studied the motion of the water. And basically, they developed an algorithm for how water behaved normally and then how it behaved with a vessel. Um, So that's how they were getting that, you know, seamless, perfect water, but adapting that into a rendering engine that responds to the hull as it goes through the water on a ship like Titanic, that took a lot of work to replicate that in that specific situation through each individual frame. There is the take her to see Mr. Murdoch shot. 
that scene, I can't remember how many, uh, I think it's something like a hundred different effects and shots in that one scene, models, CG, um, the motion capture that they used for people at the time, the technology was not very advanced. So here a lot of people rag on that scene when you see the swooping scene of the people walking on deck. That is one of the only scenes in the movie that really just doesn't age well because you can tell if you look close enough that they're definitely very um, kind of stodgy CG people. But, and Cameron, I've, I've seen talk about this in interviews. At the time, it was really groundbreaking CG work to have actual extras come in and you know, and be physical, like shoot these scenes and their motion was captured and then used to create what they hoped would look like real people on the decks. It just, it doesn't age a hundred percent. Just to create the ship outside the pub window when Jack Dawson's in the pub at the beginning was a complex process of models and motion capture and green screen. Just that one shot, which seems like such a quick thing at the beginning, but even that took, you know, a lot of people, many hours of work. Ultimately, Cameron said the technology had to be grand, but it also had to be invisible. That basically means that all of this combination of physical, you know, using mirrors, like uh, in the coal room, they only built a couple of different uh, pieces of equipment and then they just put mirrors down to make it look like the the uh, furnaces just keep going on forever. If you look at that shot, go back and watch it. You cannot tell. It's seamless. So you know, Cameron is jumping around using lots of different strategies, uh, a lot of cutting edge CGI, but ultimately, you know, in a movie like this, and he's right, the technology should look invisible. And I truly believe that it does, except for a couple of things. One, obviously, that zoom shot where you see the CG people on board on the taker to see Mr. Murdoch. And then also the funnel sequence where the funnel falls at the very end. And you know, it's kind of coming down into the water. It's very obvious that it's a combo of some CG and some models. It just doesn't you know, compared our our 2022 brains and what we see, you know, CG wise in films now, it just doesn't. There's something about that shot. Um, probably my guess is that that shot didn't have uh, as much of the like truly built physical effects in it and mostly is CG and maybe that's why it doesn't age well. Oh, and one more, the green screen, the the first class lounge, uh, 20th Century Fox made Cameron cut the budget for building the first class lounge. So that scene where Ruth and Rose and the Countess of Roths are sitting and having tea and the lounge is behind them. It's so obviously a green screen and it. it just doesn't look great. So now action movies are largely green screen. And I would argue that there's just lower stakes now because without bodies in motion on these physical sets, there just seems to be less of a sense of authenticity and kind of what I was talking about earlier with the, that movie Red Notice. And also what Cameron does really importantly, when he shoots these flooding scenes, the sinking scenes, he is making an effort to show the suffering and the, the, the terrifying experience in action. And, and, and in terms of Titanic, you know, the the historiography or the history of the culture of interpreting Titanic. It's a really complicated phrase. The other films about Titanic have not really done that. Most of the other movies about Titanic end when she sinks. And there's just a, a, you know, maybe a little montage at the end or a title card at the end. And then this many people died. But Cameron films these scenes of people dying, freezing to death, and really 
shows this amount of fear that there is on these decks, the chaos of the decks. You know, Night to Remember does some of that as well. So I certainly don't want to uh, discredit that movie in any way. But I think Cameron really shoots more of the sinking and the the struggle of the human beings that are left on the ship at the end than any other previous film adaptation. Of One last thing about the digital shots, and I think it sort of sums up you know, the film kind of as well. Cameron said, I think the moment when Jack and Rose fade as the ship transforms into the wreck turned out to be a kind of effects epiphany because it shows the power visual effects can have to merge concepts in poetic ways. And this is the key to me here, that that joining CG with these practical effects, if it done right and seamlessly, it can be quite poetic. And of course, I think that's a duh thing now because we're so used to TV shows, movies, music, I mean, we have a phone in our pocket 24 hours a day that can create a movie at the drop of a hat, but that just wasn't the case at this point. At one point, um, speaking to the realistic (laughs) nature of some of the sinking, Kate Winslet remembers that in Tank 4, when they were uh, shooting a sequence with dead bodies, uh, she remembers she had, she cupped her hands to block out all the equipment and cameras and anything modern day for a moment and just zoned in on the bodies in the water. And she said she had to look away. It was so alarming and she felt like she was you know, in the moment so much. Uh, uh, Francis Fisher, who played Ruth, describes all the corpses getting up to go for a bathroom break. And so she kind of had the opposite experience. She said it was um, kind of took her out of the moment and was very surreal. So back on the set in Rosarito, obviously, uh, by February, everybody was reportedly losing it. (laughs) Night shoots in cold weather, 16 hour days, um, I think nobody worked harder than Cameron, but that doesn't necessarily justify what he was, you know, asking of people, obviously, as I spoke about. In the in an interview, I heard him say, interestingly, that the scene where Leo goes under the water to look for keys when Jack and Rose are, are think they're going to be locked behind that gate and the steward drops his keys and Jack gets them. They were just so crunched for time at one point that that scene was just shot while everybody else was at lunch. And James Cameron, I guess, was on scuba and went under and shot that scene, just him and Leo while everybody else was at lunch. The scenes where they're coming up from those locked gates, this is a notorious story. I'm sure you've heard it before, but Kate Winslet's coat gets caught at one point. She's underwater. It's terrifying. And I, I mean, you know, as an actor, you're not necessarily someone that's trained in uh, the skills that it requires to be in the water that much, to scuba, that sort of, I just, I can't even imagine, you know, that's a whole nother level of job description for that kind of, of shoot. And it had to be terrifying to be, you know, filming these scenes of near drowning with real water, with thousands and thousands of gallons of real water. So we will go into, when I do the cultural history and sort of resonance of the film in a couple of weeks, I'll go into James Horner and the music and my heart will go on a little bit. But what you should know for now is that, you know, as the movie is nearing production, he's meeting with Horner. Uh, They had worked together back at Roger Corman's studios back in the 80s. And then again on Aliens, which had been a really, really bad experience for them. Problems on the set of Aliens had turned the music composing time into just like a compressed, really quick two weeks. And Horner had rightly so um, been angered by that. But they end up working together again. James Cameron originally envisioned that Enya would work on the score. He had written the movie while listening to Enya, which is one of my favorite things about James Cameron 
because I do exactly the same thing. I've been an Inya addict since I was about 11 years old. I have this tradition. Uh, we visit my family. We visit Asheville, North Carolina a lot. It's uh, one of our favorite places in the world. I think eventually we probably will live there. We adore it. And <laughs> every time we arrive there, I it's like my... The way that North Carolina feels, especially in the fall, in the mountains there, just the, that screams Inya to me. So I have this tradition that like the minute we arrive at our hotel, I put Inya on and my family makes fun of me. But all that to say, I also write to Inya. So this really appeals to me. Inya did not want to work on the movie. And so essentially what ends up happening is that Horner and Cameron decide that kind of the the heart of the ship, because it was built in Belfast was kind of Irish and Celtic in nature. So the score that is produced is this hybrid of that kind of Irish Celtic heritage of a new age world music Enya kind of feel. And they use um, uh, the voice of Norwegian pop singer Sissel to do, you know, the humming and kind of the echoes that you hear in those songs. And Cameron also wanted a love theme, kind of like in Dr. Shivago. He used that as a reference point in I did mention that last week uh, as sort of a, some parallels to Titanic and Dr. Shivago. So he said, Cameron said, it doesn't matter if you play a love theme on a solo piano. It doesn't matter how it's played. If you have a melody that works, you break hearts, basically. And that's exactly what Horner does when he goes off to, he takes the dailies coming in, the daily uh, set videos. He goes off and he writes these melodies and Horner played Cameron the theme that's sort of woven into a lot of the other score. Three weeks later, <laughs> after initially meeting about all this, on his home piano, and James Cameron apparently cried. A great 90s moment. And music is obviously used to, you know, distinguish classes in the movie, just like, you know, how Cameron builds the geography of the ship by showing us all the areas. The music always is a cue, right, to tell us kind of where we are in the ship in terms of, um, you know, down there in steerage with Irish uh, which that's a whole thing. The uh, highlighting of the Irish in this film, you know, they were not the largest percentage of third class passengers. So it seems a bit disproportionate. But the the ship was built in Belfast. And I think that's kind of what they were going for with that. Um, you know, so anyway, you're obviously like you could be in third class and that type of music. And then there's music cues for when they're in first class. So it's it's used really well. The last days of shooting in Rosarito were in late March. They did, uh, oh, I forgot to mention the kissing scene on the bow. Let me mention that real quick. So apparently for the bow kiss, that is another shot that is a combination, obviously, of a lot of CG and practical and green screen because then it melds into the wreck like Cameron was talking about. But for the actual like Jack and Rose looking at each other with the sunset in the background, there's a few minutes that are actual physical footage of them on the ship in Rosarito and that's a real sunset and they waited and waited and waited to shoot and then one day the heavens sort of opened up and they got the perfect shot that's how um, James Cameron tells it but anyway uh, they had to do a few more pickup shots of that and so that was one of the last I think that was the last scene that Kate and Leo shot was some additional uh, shooting for that scene with sort of a sunset painted on one wall uh, to fill in for the actual sunset at that point. 
Cameron had everyone take a moment of silence after they filmed that last bit, but the actors had something else in mind. (laughs) Kate Winslet gave Jim a big hug, and Leo and John Landau took that opportunity to soak James Cameron with a bucket of ice water. That seems pretty appropriate. To note, people say that the last days on set are always the best days with Jim Cameron because his passion shows and he can't give up the camera. I just love that. You can say what you will about James Cameron, but I love that uh, way of putting it. So then most of the cast is done, but Cameron finishes with one last very daunting scene. And part of me thinks that Cameron very specifically saved this scene for last in case something happened to him. I'm not kidding. I uh, I think he realized what a risky scene this was and, and probably put it in last for that reason. So it is Captain Smith's death scene where he walks onto the bridge and then all the water floods in through the windows as the ship takes its final plunge. It was just Cameron and a stuntman. Nobody else was allowed to be in there. It was essentially just a box filling with water, a glass box filling with water. So uh, he said he got the shot, explosion happens, and he was like pressed back against the wall in a very scary way. And he obviously survived, but it was uh, a very complex, um, actually, you know, not complex, a simple but difficult stunt to do. So that was the last thing shot every from everything that I read, just him and this stuntman shooting Captain Smith's death. Rosarito became a ghost town fast. Kate Winslet described packing her stuff up and thinking, quote, I'm not going to be speaking Rose's words anymore. She's gone now. I've lost her. Of course, she wouldn't lose her. She'd <laughs> She's probably been with Rose her whole life since then, uh, for better or worse. In the Vanity Fair article that uh, is published as the film is released, Leonardo DiCaprio said that at a wrap party in March, Winslet presented him with a thick thermal blanket in which he buried himself. Cameron starts to work on the editing process. He worked nonstop from his house. His house basically turns into mission control. On a Just so you know, on a typical three-hour drama of a film, editors have between 600 and 800,000 feet of film. Cameron had, tw- had shot uh, in Rosarito twice that. Uh, Cameron had been sort of working towards being an official editor on his films for a while. For Titanic, he does. He becomes a full-fledged editor. There is a story (laughs) that, uh, there's a profile that came out about him right as the movie was released, and the journalist saw a razor blade taped to his computer monitor, and Cameron famously said that that was there uh, in case the film didn't work. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) That's, you know, pretty dark joke, but that is a notorious story about him. They had a test screening at the Mall of America. (laughs) That's such a 90s moment as well. And believe it or not, the first audience to see the test screening and not even all the special effects shots were in thought that if anything, the sinking was too long and that they loved the love story. Also that what came out of this test screening was that Cameron had originally shot a really intense, uh, like, um, chase scene um, of Lovejoy. Basically, there's a cut scene where Billy Zane's character, Cal, says says to his manservant, Lovejoy, Spicer Lovejoy, great name, you know, 
if you go after them, then you can have the the necklace that he had accidentally put in the coat at that point in the sinking. So there's this chase sequence where Lovejoy is chasing down Jack and Rose through the first class dining saloon as it floods. Really expensive scene to shoot. Costs, I think, a million dollars to shoot multiple days. And they end up cutting it because, and right, and I think it was a good decision because the test audience said that you, you're already on a sinking ship. We don't need the added peril of a gun chase. And that it just seemed unnatural. And so he cut it. I mean, that's that's a big cut to make. That's an expensive scene to cut, but he was, was the right thing to do. I'm going to talk a little bit in a couple of weeks about you know, how much money this movie made and in terms of its, you know, cultural residence, why that's important. So I'll be going over some of that again. And we'll talk a lot about all the kind of cultural artifacts we continue to see of this movie. Uh, I was watching um, just a sneak peek of something recent. I was watching Encanto with my kids, which is if you have kids, or even if you don't have kids, incredible new Disney movie. It's on Disney Plus now. It came out a few months ago. And uh, there's this great song. And the songs there uh, on this movie are written by Lynn Manuel. Lynn Manuel Miranda, and one of them, it's called Surface Pressure. And just all of a sudden, in the middle of the song in the movie, uh, there's a line about not knowing how big an iceberg is. And then the animation is that the character's on the Titanic. And anyway, I just, my kids know now any Titanic reference, they just, they turn to me. They do a little, you know, kid wink. So we'll talk a lot about the cultural resonance. If you have, ooh, this is fun. If you have a favorite, Titanic movie reference in pop culture, uh, its appearance on another movie, another TV show, music video, uh, any sort of bit of pop culture, and you'd like to for me to talk about it. I think one part of that episode is just going to be kind of listing off all of the pop culture places we've seen it. You know, the Britney Spears song. Uh, I can't remember which song it is, but there's the music video where she, it's all about the old woman in the heart of the ocean. Or like the guy says, oh, but I got this necklace out of the ocean for you. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> there's a lot of them. So if you have a favorite Titanic pop culture moment uh, that's related to the movie, email me or or Insta DM me and I will include it. Absolutely. And you want to email me and, you know, give me a little paragraph synopsis about your relationship to this movie and what it means to you. And then a pop culture reference or something like that. I will totally read some of them on the pod. So please message me. Absolutely. And we'll also uh, talk next week about <laughs> My Heart Will Go On song and its resonance. But just so you know, the movie opened with $28.6 million, but uh, built every week from there. It peaked on Valentine's Day, 1998, when it earned $13 million in a single day. Seven weeks into its release, no film had ever built its audience week to week and stayed at number one this long before, and nothing has since. And so (laughs) you can tell me all you want about which films have broken the box office record for Titanic, even with inflation adjusted or whatever. But no film's done that. (laughs) Staying at the top of a box office for that many weeks and building an audience like that, that's just unprecedented. Ultimately, it made $1.8 billion worldwide. There is a myth that Cameron didn't get his back end, but that's actually not true. Fox turned down his offer for Cameron to give back his back end when it was over budget back a few months before the movie's release. They didn't take up his offer. So take him up on his offer. So he, he definitely got his back end. So James Cameron's a very wealthy man off of this movie. So one last thing I want to touch on before we go, because I don't think we'll touch on this in the cultural resonance episode. We will, if you're 
thinking like, what about the Oscars? What about my heart will go on driving me crazy being on the radio every 20 minutes, that sort of thing. We're going to we're gonna talk about that. That's in a couple of weeks. But I did want to talk about it's uh, the film's relationship with accuracy a little bit. So, so Cameron has said it's, quote, impossible to separate human emotion from the truth. I think as we've discussed on this podcast, that's incredibly true, particularly for the story of Titanic. Um, you know, he's talking about in terms of memory, these, uh, you know, mythologies we've talked about, about the goodbyes on the first class deck, the band playing on things that I've, I mentioned when we had uh, William Hazelgrove on talking about some of breaking down the longstanding, you know, first class male mythologies. So there's sort of a weird relationship between you know, longstanding Titanic researchers and writers, um, some of them, at least not all of them with, the, you know, accuracy, quote unquote, of this film. And I've seen, you know, quite a few people that are pretty well known in the Titanic community make comments to that effect. I even saw I won't, you know, I won't say who it was, like I said, there's no point in, I, you know, I can speak in generalities, I don't need to like call anybody out, because it's not even calling out because it's just a conversation. Uh, but I did see on a Instagram account, that's a pretty well known Titanic account the other day even said something along the lines of, well, the 97 movies, the inaccurate movie and the, the, the 58 movies, the accurate movie, and there's this weird like dichotomy that people want to have, like one's accurate, and one's not instead of kind of more meeting in the middle, and they both have, they both have accuracies and inaccuracies, especially on the micro levels. It's a weird relationship, there's tends to be kind of a cultural trend as this movie is remembered as the 97 movie is remembered to call it inaccurate, which after you've heard the last three hours of, you know, uh, the tale of how Cameron worked tirelessly to achieve a very realistic 1912 set, it just that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. In fact, a lot of the same people that say this movie is inaccurate in this vague way are also, you know, big fans of Don Lynch, for example, who's probably the most well-known Titanic historian. And Lynch himself worked with Cameron on the movie and testified to the accuracy of the film in a CNN special back then in 1997-1998. So I don't get it. Don Lynch said, quote, it was every photograph I'd ever seen. It was perfect. That is a quote from the documentary Titanic 20 years later that he came on and did uh, with Jim Cameron when it was the 20th anniversary of the movie, which I highly recommend. That is on Disney Plus because it's, uh, I think it's a joint venture with Nat Geo, which has a deal with Disney Plus. But that one is on Disney Plus right now. Definitely recommend it. But just a couple of things that people have pointed out about the accuracy. So the paintings, the Picassos. Uh, Cameron has said that it's pointless to make this argument that they didn't go down on the ship. Everyone knows that priceless Picassos didn't go down on the Titanic. And Cameron said that actually the paintings were not exact replicas of the known Picasso paintings. They had small, slight differences. So Cameron imagined it like, you know, Picasso painted several that were like that and Rose ended up with some of them, for example. So, and again, it's just, that's such nitpicking to begin with. The Murdoch situation uh, where James Cameron has in the script, and it's obviously it's shot in the movie, has Murdoch shooting at the steerage passengers and then taking the gun on himself. That scene is based, it is based on some research. I'm sure Cameron and his team read, which is where they got that. Uh, I believe it was Eugene Daly. He was a bagpipe player who survived from third class. He 
do not quote me. I I don't want to interrupt recording to go look it up. So I'm going to give the caveat if I could have this a little wrong. But I do believe Eugene Daly was one of the ones that testified that they saw this happen. Um, There were some reports that there was an officer that shot himself. There were some specific reports that point to Murdoch. This isn't just to say that this isn't out of the blue. Um, But the other side of that is that there is 100% no proof that that happened in any way, shape or form. And Murdoch was, you know, very much a hero of the night on Titanic, getting people off in boats and working tirelessly. So when he was portrayed that way in Cameron's film, there was a big backlash in Murdoch's hometown. And eventually Cameron did... um, issue an apology. And in the Titanic 20 years later documentary, he talks about this and he is very apologetic. And he says that he should have made that officer a generic character instead of, you know, (laughs) trying to jump in on the narrative of of a person that really did exist. And Chelsea Pinkard and I talked about this in the Titanic on fiction episode that you know, when you write historical fiction, you should you should choose generic characters instead of uh, attempting to write the narrative of real people because that gets pretty dicey, as James Cameron in this situation does see. Um, another one is that people dig on is that in the movie it appears as though the lookouts being distracted by looking at Jack and Rose kissing is what makes them miss the iceberg. This to me has always seemed like a silly point. I mean, you, the, the lookouts were two human beings in the crow's nest. And we know that on some level, they missed seeing that iceberg early enough. And that's just a fact. And that's just, you know, part of that is human error. So whether or not they, you know, in a fictionalized account, they glance fleetingly at a couple of people on a deck. I don't see how that I mean, I never even interpreted the movie as as that. I always just sort of saw that scene of them in the crow's nest as cutting to them and showing like, hey, here's the transition from a jolly moment. We're on the grandest ship in the world. We're up in this crow's nest. We can see the, you know, whole wide world in some respect. And, oh, we get to spy on, you know, the private lives of people below. Oh, there's something. To me, it always just seemed to show the transition from that jolly moment to, you know, oh, holy hell, here's the iceberg. So I never interpreted it that way, but some people did. And who knows? I've, I've seen people argue for a long time about that online. It's a Hollywood movie. So no, it's not 100% accurate. Uh, anyone who walked into this movie expecting academic history, that's never going to, it's never going to satisfy you, nor is any movie ever going to satisfy you. And I'll tell you, like, as someone who trained in the academic, you know, history setting for many years, there's just, you're never going to make everybody have, I mean, any movie, any movie that comes out that is historical in nature, you are going to find a group of people that will nitpick it in some way. I mean, it's just physically impossible to not. And um, I've been guilty of it myself. I, you know, it's probably no secret that I give this movie a free pass on a lot of things in my mind because I have such an emotional connection to it, a truly emotional connection to it. But I I will say I hundred percent objectively believe that there's just no way to make a Hollywood movie and make it, you know, 100% historically accurate It's never going to happen. This movie, I feel like really more than others gets called out for how viewers historical knowledge and recognition overall becomes conflated with or replaced by emotional attachment to the characters. But I really feel like 
like I said, like every good historical epic does this on some level. And it's, you know, it's also very problematic, like I said, to make movies about real people. So I hear a lot of people argue that this movie should have just been Lytle or Murdoch, Smith, that sort of thing, just the crew. And, uh, you know, maybe some of the the other, you know, passengers like Gracie or, or Eugene Daly, you know, so on from their class, that it should have just been the historical characters. But I would argue that that's in a technical sense that could be really well done. And in a night to remember it is, but then you're missing the emotion of uh, which is how you connect to a movie and, you know, feel things. So anyway, that's my two cents. Um, also, in terms of accuracy, it's important to remember that the whole film takes place in Rose's memory as she's telling it 84 years later. So there's a catch-all explainer. We figured it out. At one point, Kate Winslet goes to see the movie in 1998 with an audience. And this is, you know, I think of like uh, Margot Robbie playing Sharon Tate in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood when she goes in to see her own movie to see the audience react. I I think of that as as similar to this moment. But uh, Winslet said she wept flood buckets. And here we are. We've arrived at this moment where Titanic is complete. And I will be talking, like I said, uh, in a couple of weeks about uh, some of the after effects of the film in a cultural sense. But for now, I'll end on this little nugget. Uh, James Cameron ended up staying really good friends with Gloria Stewart, who played Old Rose, and his wife, Susie Amos, who we obviously know he met met on this film. She played Lizzie, Rose's granddaughter. They would stay close with Gloria. And uh, there's a great photo of James Cameron and Gloria on the set of Old Rose's house. And here is the accompanying uh, set of dialogue that uh, they supposedly said at this moment that the picture was taken. And Jim said, shall we get back to the living hell of what we call film production? Gloria replied, well, the answer to that, of course, is it's a living. (laughs) And she said then, I don't think I'll act after this. After all the years and all my films, this one is the frosting on the cake. All right, guys. (laughs) You know, uh, one thing I realized as I planned out and then did these two episodes on the making of is that you know it was fun to dive into the technical part of James Cameron making this movie. And then I got to touch on obviously some of the historical figures, some of these questions of accuracy. So it's been fantastic. But I realized I left myself no room in these episodes to talk about my personal connections to the movie. So I will be doing that over the next two episodes, which is the feminist reading of Titanic. And then the very last one in this Back to 97 series will be on all the cultural kind of implications and resonances of the film. And like I said, if you have a personal story, you know, I and the I think it was at the beginning of the the Leo retrospecto retrospective episode, I gave kind of part of my personal story of going to see the movie for the first time when I was 13. If you have a story like that, if you feel connected to this movie like I do, if you have a story, if you have, like I said, a pop cultural reference that maybe you think, God, I wonder if LA has seen that or heard that, like send it to me, email me. I will in that final episode in this series, I'm going to leave like 15 or 20 minutes to just read those and or, you know, play clips of things I can find that you mentioned, that sort of thing. So please, please, please do that. I also wanted to mention three podcasts that have fantastic Titanic episodes.
episodes. And because they because the episodes of these shows were not subsumed like mine was on this with the making of, they more just talk about the actual film and their personal connections to it, how it made them feel, how it's been interpreted over time, you know, in their own experiences and in broader culture. That's these are you know a different type of experience. So I highly recommend uh, these three episodes. Unspooled, which is a fantastic podcast that they originally went over the top 100 AFI films um, that have been named the top 100 of all time. But then the podcast became so popular and they loved doing it so much that now they do all sorts of of films. So they're still going. But their Titanic episode from a couple of years ago is outstanding. And Amy Nicholson uh, is feels like a kindred spirit when she you'll hear when she talks about Titanic. I really, really, really relate. But it's her and Paul Shear and, and they're funny and fantastic. But also, Amy Nicholson's a film critic. And so her analyses are just top notch. Highly recommend that podcast. Their Titanic episode is fantastic. Also, the recent episode on Titanic from the You Are Good podcast. Stunning. The conversation that the hosts and the guests had about what the Rose character, for example, means to them, you know, as feminists, as women. I mean, I was taking notes for my own episode, and I will be crediting them as a source when I do my own episode on Rose. So that's fantastic, too. And their podcast is really, really great. I've listened to a few other episodes as well. That's the You Are Good podcast. And then um, a podcast called Sentimental Garbage that I discovered the other day and love. Lots of fun. The host basically dives into things that are considered girly, chick flicks, girly books, things that have been dismissed or, you know, sort of downgraded by pop culture because they are for women, which, uh, spoiler alert, this is a lot of what I'm going to be talking about next week uh, with the reputation of Titanic has suffered because women like it, which uh, is unfortunately part of a bigger trend with things. But anyway, this podcast uh, really dives into things that are considered for women, but breaks down like why women like them, why they're important and why they should not be, you know, sent to the garbage bin. So anyway, that's sentimental garbage. I haven't listened to a ton of episodes yet, but I'm really digging what I have listened to so far. Let's see here. A bookshop. I have my links in my bio on Insta and in the show notes. If you're thinking about uh, buying one of the new uh, Unsinkable Book Club selections for the next few months, which I announced earlier this week. All those are there. And if you purchase one of them through my bookshop link, then you support the pod and then you also support independent booksellers. So Bookshop's a great website. So if you are going to purchase online, I highly recommend you purchase there. Uh, there's Gareth Russell's Ship of Dreams for in a couple of weeks. And then Hazel Gaynor's The Girl Who Came Home for March. And then Ben Rain's The Last American Slave Ship for April. Good have <laughs> A lot of fun. I'm really excited. I'm really excited to talk about books. One of my favorite things to do in the world. And I'm excited to talk uh, with uh, Gareth Russell and Hazel Gaynor coming up. That is really exciting. If you're able to support the pod on Patreon, I have a bonus episode that is posting today as well. It's just happened to time out that way this time. But the bonus episode posts at the on the last day of every month. The one this month is my personal walk through the Titanic Museum attraction. Show announcement as well. The education director for the Titanic Museum attractions is going to come on the pod in late February. That's exciting. 
All right, what else? Um, oh, the link for that, of course, is patreon.com backslash unsinkable pod. The bonus episodes are for any tier. And I really appreciate it if you are able to jump on there and support the pod that way. Always, always, if you're enjoying the pod, please rate and review on Apple or Spotify. I see that Spotify has ratings as well now, which is really cool. And I like the feature they have that you're only allowed to rate things that it can show, that that your feed shows that you've listened to. So you're not like unlocked to be able to review a show until you've listened to a few episodes and it notes that you have um, and it's sort of algorithm. So kind of like that. All right, guys. I know I ramble at the end. I'm terrible at this part. (laughs) Uh, But thank you for listening. Thank you for indulging me on these 97 episodes. Uh, Like I said, you know, there's a lot more regular episodes um, coming down the pipeline as well. But thanks for listening to this special series. I'm having a whole lot of fun with it. Um, All right. Sources are in the show notes and on my blog on my website, unsinkablepod.com. And, you know, anything you'd like to discuss, any suggestions you have for episodes, please email me as always, unsinkablepod at gmail.com. Insta and Twitter, unsinkablepod. Thank you again. Have a fantastic week. And I will see you back in a week for the profound feminism of Rose DeWitt Bucator and probably later in the week for Gareth Russell and the Ship of Dreams because I will not be able to wait. I'm so excited. Make sure you're reading it. Make sure you've read it before that episode. All right. Bye, guys. (laughs) 